Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dina Srinivasan. Dina publishes research on antitrust issues in big tech. She's also a fellow at the Thurman Arnold Project at Yale University. Dina, welcome to World of DAS. Hey, Oren. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, you wrote this really interesting paper in 2019 where you argued Facebook uses its monopolistic position to kind of extract more consumer data than they would otherwise. And if a company like Facebook can charge higher rents in the form of consumer data, is it because they're like good at leveraging the data? Why is that perceived as inherently bad? Sure. So I don't think I come into any of these economic equations perceiving anything as inherently bad. Okay. So it's about the trade-offs or? It's just an empirical question. Like, do consumers like it or do they not like it? Like, where is the equilibrium in a competitive market? Just like you would ask, what is the equilibrium price in a competitive market? And so for me, I was curious to go back and look at what was the relationship between consumers and Facebook with respect to the amount of data that they're giving up in that trade for social network services. Okay, got it. And where'd you come down on it? The outlier for me was whether consumers were happy with, for example, having Facebook track them off of Facebook and across thousands and thousands of independent websites and apps per their real identity. And so I was curious to see whether that's something that consumers really were cool with or not. So when I went back and I researched, I undug this really interesting narrative where Facebook actually entered the market competing on privacy. There's some social theory out there as to why a communications network would do that to expand their business and why consumers need privacy so that they feel safe and communicating and therefore you generate more communications between humans. And then I tracked sort of how that changed over time, how Facebook tried to get users to allow Facebook to track them on third-party sites and on third-party websites and what happened in 2006, what happened between 2006, 2012. And there was like this continuous struggle back and forth of Facebook trying to get it and consumers resisting, like, no, we don't want to give that up. And that Facebook was facing a lot of competition in the market. And so where I came out on that inquiry is that this is sort of an element of the trade that consumers gave up only after they no longer had any other choices in the market. And so it looks like a reflection of monopoly power, and it looks like a monopoly rent, as opposed to something good that everybody's just cool with. Interesting. And would you say the narrative of part of the rise of WhatsApp pre-Facebook was that they were very pro-privacy? Yeah, I think that fits exactly into that narrative. Okay, interesting. Now, Facebook in 2014, they still paid 10% of their market cap for WhatsApp, because there was a lot of competitive pressure. WhatsApp was ascendant during that time. Do you think there's still the ability to compete with social media companies by basically charging a lower privacy price to draw users in, maybe like a Telegram or some of these other different messaging platforms can do? For sure. I think that we've seen that legitimately in the market when it comes to, for example, competition between WhatsApp and Signal. Yep. And now more people are moving to Signal because they feel it's more private or something? Exactly. So we can like go back and look at very specific instances when Facebook announced certain privacy 
changes with regards to WhatsApp that decreased user privacy and users responding to that by switching to Signal. Okay, interesting. Now, when you're doing your research, where do you come down on like whether Facebook should have been allowed to acquire Instagram in kind of retrospect? To be very honest, I haven't spent a lot of time on the merger questions, on the acquisition questions from a legal perspective. My instinct reaction is that, okay, well, what would happen if we broke Facebook off from WhatsApp and Instagram tomorrow? Most people I know would still have a Facebook account, an Instagram account, and a WhatsApp account. And so you're not actually creating more competition because people use those products for different purposes. And so you're not going to generate competition between these three products just by breaking them up. So breaking up would be kind of a simplistic answer to dealing with any type of monopolistic power. Yes. However, I do think that there's an argument that, okay, but even if you have three separate pieces and three separate products that are used for different purposes, each one would have a large user base and they would be able to inch into or slide into each other's markets more easily with their existing user bases and with sort of those captured network effects. And I think that that is an okay argument. I don't think it's the primary way of like generating competition, but I think it's an okay argument. I know recently you're focused a lot more on Google. And one of the things that you've argued is that ad exchanges like Google's are kind of structurally very similar to financial markets, but they're really not regulated at all like financial markets are regulated. What do you think specifically about ad exchanges warrants more regulation in your opinion? So that research and that inquiry was, and I'll kind of diverge a little bit to give a little bit of background here. After the Facebook paper, I had to decide what to write about next and went back in my notes. And there was a moment in 2014 after Michael Lewis's Flash Boys book came out. And I remember in the industry, executives were sort of sharing this book and sharing funny stories about how similar things happen in ad markets. Where you're like front running trades and doing all these other types of things. Yeah, exactly. And they were laughing. And I just thought it was like incredibly interesting that you could have like this national outrage about this type of conduct in these markets over here. And yet over here, nobody is really talking about it and people are laughing. Like I just thought that that was just like an interesting phenomenon to watch. And so that memory stuck with me. And when I decided to research advertising markets and Google, I always had that in the back of my head. So I started by researching, well, okay, Google is dominant on the buy side, on the sell side, in the exchange markets. Why? What is going on? And the reasons get really complex and weird and arcane and they make your brain hurt. And I'm always searching for a narrative, like a story, like how do I make sense out of this chaos of facts? And so I started to study financial markets. And at a certain point, it became very apparent that, oh, we had tipping in this market or Google was able to consolidate this market because it was doing X and X is exactly like Y that happens in this other market. And, oh, we don't let it happen in the other market because we know that it creates competition problems. In the financial market, there are these market makers, maybe like a Citadel Securities or something. And their goal is to help things run smoothly and to be buyers of last resort, sellers of last resort, et cetera. How is the Google one so different? I think we would be opening too complex a can of worms to go down that route. I think that the analogy in the bigger picture to financial markets is really between the brokerages and the exchanges. 
So the parties that are representing sellers, the parties that are representing buyers, and literally what are the responsibilities of those parties and how do they route to exchanges? Got it. But in the financial world, there's been a lot of talk about people front-running trades. And so often you see a scenario where maybe an individual consumer is buying something and then somebody else will front run it and they'll make a couple cents spread on that transaction before the consumer. So essentially the consumer's getting a little bit of a worse price, whether they're selling or whether they're buying a particular type of thing. And I'm not sure if it seems not good for the consumer. I'm not sure if it's illegal. You would know better than me. It seems like it happens all the time. I assume it's not illegal, but it does seem like somewhat bad for consumers. Is that kind of the way you think about the Google thing? It's not necessarily like illegal, but it's just detrimental to basically buyers and sellers in the market? So a couple of things. I think that there is some debate around the type of small front running that is happening in financial markets when you sort of route order flow to a market maker like a Citadel, and it's happening in small increments very quickly. So there are bigger problems in ad markets that have largely been solved, or we try to solve them actively in financial markets where there's less ambiguity. And it's those types of bigger issues that are happening in advertising markets. I'll give one example. If in advertising markets, you know, we use different words, we don't call them brokerages, but they're essentially an agent for the seller and an agent for the buyer. And both of those agents are responsible for routing to a centralized exchange. And the question comes up like, okay, well, this guy over here wants to buy an ad and that same ad is trading on eight different exchanges. Should I buy it on exchange X where it's being sold at a $5 CPM? Or should I buy it on my own exchange where it's being sold for, let's say, a higher CPM, a higher cost? And so the similar issue in financial markets is regulated by a duty to serve your client's interest. And so if you have something that's trading on 50 different exchanges and you're going to get a better price on that exchange, then you need to go out and buy it on that exchange. In ad markets, you have very fundamental problems, very fundamental conflicts of interest at the first level of operation between the buyer and the seller and their agent before you even get to the middle market makers that are providing liquidity. And there is no obligation for the entity that is representing the buyer in that instance to go out and get the better price ad from the lower cost exchange as opposed to the higher priced ad on their own exchange. And the buyer's agent usually gets a percentage of the media. So in some ways, they're probably even more incented to get them to pay more. That's right. So it's a from a big picture perspective, it's a situation that can lead to concentration problems very quickly because if you control order flow and you have bottleneck power on the buy side and the sell side, when you control order routing, it can create concentration and competition problems, but it's also an issue of protecting buyers and sellers. Like you want, why is it that in ad markets, somebody pays a hundred bucks for ads and you have about 50 bucks that's being taken out and going to intermediaries in that transaction? I mean, these are transactions that happen in milliseconds. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Because there's all these nickels and dimes getting taken out on the way. So maybe no one gets 50% unless it's Google all the way through. But yeah, it's a very good point. It doesn't make sense. Like these things are very inefficient. Yeah. So if you start just with that fact with economists and you sit a few economists down, you're like, gosh, you know, there's this electronically traded market. And when $100 gets spent on this side, 
50 to 60 bucks makes it to the other end in millisecond. I mean, that's an incredibly inefficient market. Even the iTunes store has a lower take rate than that or something. Even the iTunes store has a lower take rate. That's right. And so, yeah, it's just a puzzle. It's just like a little economic puzzle. Like, isn't it interesting that we have these markets that are electronically traded that are so inefficient? Who does it hurt? Small businesses buying ads and the business of news is trying to hold our democracy to account. On your question of whether it's illegal, it's not illegal because we don't have any laws or regulations around it. You can look at the problem from two perspectives. One is antitrust law. And you say, okay, well, is the firm that is engaging in this conduct breaking antitrust laws in some way? And you can also look at it from the perspective of regulation, which is, well, golly, we know a lot about these types of markets. This is what we do over here to at least partially restrain competition or concentration problems. Why don't we just apply the same principles to this market too, the ad market, where the structure is very similar and the problems are very similar? It is weird in Google's case, because they're such a big ad exchange that they often represent both the buyer and the seller in the exact same transaction, which does seem like there's, again, you could maybe do it and have a wall, et cetera, between everything. But it does seem like there's a lot of opportunities there for conflicts of interest. Given the power that a company like Google has, what would be a remedy? Would you just say you have to act in the best interest more and you have to prove you're acting in the best interest? Or what's the remedy to solve that problem? So we know based on our experience in these markets, and we've applied these rules outside of the electronically traded financial markets, we know that the remedy is to structurally separate the buy side from the sell side from the centralized trading venues. So you need a structural separation that manages, you basically need to manage the conflicts of interest. And in financial markets, we do it in two ways. The companies that own the biggest exchanges are not permitted to also operate substantively on the buy side or the sell side. So we have structural separation rules. So if you have the NYSE can't sort of own Charles Schwab or something like that. However, we do allow smaller brokers to own off-exchange trading venues, which are like smaller exchanges where there's less systemic risk. But in those situations, they have to nonetheless manage conflicts of interest through ethical walls in their organizations, and they have to structurally separate the organization internally. And there's some sort of SEC audit or something like that that happens to prove it or something like that. Right. They have to basically have like written policies and procedures to make sure that their employees abide by it. This is a little bit of a tangent, but when Bezos testified that we have a rule and Amazon employees are not using third-party data, they're not allowed to do that. When I saw that, I'm like, okay, but obviously they're breaking the rules unless, unless there are written policies and procedures to make sure that employees can't access the data and can't use it. Because we know that to be true. It doesn't matter if you have the rule, you actually have to make sure that employees don't violate the rule because data is very amorphous. It's really easy to use it. The returns are going to be very high, either on your for your own salary purposes or bonus purposes. And so you need to make sure that improper data use is not happening. The second thing that we need to do, and we know to be true in these markets, is we need to enforce, we need sunlight. We just need lots of sunlight so the free market can operate better. Because it is very opaque. These transactions are incredibly opaque in general. Like, how do the money flows or anything like that? Even someone who's steeped in the ad industry forever, which is where I came from, it is very, very hard to track how the dollars flow. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll just give like one example. And I thought this was really funny. I remember during my research, I was 
we saw that people were complaining that Google redacted some information from their records that they provided back to sellers, which sellers used to audit sort of how the money is flowing and how transactions are happening. And one of the things they redacted was timestamps of trades. And I kept scratching my head and I was like, well, okay, but like if they redacted it, then it must have relevance. But like, what is the relevance of timestamps? And I guess I didn't find an answer to this question initially by researching ad markets. So I pivoted to sort of researching the value of timestamps in financial markets. And it's used by industry participants, by market participants, precisely to see whether their brokers are front running their trades. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Got it. <laughs> and so you have a very specific rule, like you need to provide timestamps on all trading records and they have to be incredibly, incredibly precise. And in Google's case, I don't think they redacted it. They were just rounding them up to the nearest hour. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is sort of like a weird arcane fact, but when you tell these stories to people in financial markets, they light up right away because they know exactly what's going on, which is funny. Interesting. Now, I have heard rumors for years that these prices are not good for both the buyers and the sellers. And I think almost everybody, at least every sophisticated player in the ad ecosystem had a sense that these things, but they were still transacting in the ecosystem. They kind of knew they were being taken advantage of, but they still were transacting anyway. Maybe they're moving a small amount of their spend over to another platform like Facebook. So somehow like they still decided to do it, even though they knew they were being taken advantage of. Is that okay? Like, okay, well, I, I understand I'm getting a worse price, but I know what it is. And maybe they didn't know how bad it was, but they had a pretty good understanding that they were getting very much taken advantage of. They still decided with their own free will to transact. Yeah. I mean, we decide with our own free will to still walk into an emergency room when we need to, and we have no idea what the prices are. But that's a really bad analogy. I guess I, I just have two thoughts on that issue. The first is a lot of these advertisers, a lot of this money is coming from small advertisers that are unsophisticated. Yeah, and going to small publishers. And going to small publishers that are also unsophisticated. And we're talking about a market that is as complex as financial markets. I have empathy for those parties because there's no way that they understand really what's going on and how to protect their interests in the face of this type of complexity. Just like the SEC protects the local investor, we need to protect the local plumber or something like that, or someone who operates a small website and makes a few thousand dollars a month from the website or something. Exactly or provide at least enough transparency so that they can help themselves or the other parties in the free market could come in to guide them. The second thing that I think is really interesting is that a lot of these big companies, a lot of the big brands outsource ad buying to agencies. And agency teams are compensated by taking a cut on the money they spend. And so it's a weird way to align interests. And also, everyone knew that for a while. I would say, at least for the last 25 years, most advertisers didn't feel the agencies were actually true agents where they were using doing things in their best interest. Yet, for various reasons, they still, in some cases, they took it in house, but for various reasons, they still decided to work with most of these agencies. Why do you think is it just inertia? Or again, in this case, like they kind of knew they're being taken advantage of. They know it's worse for them. They know that things are much slower often, and they're paying a much, much higher price, often 10 to 20% more for things. 
yet they're still deciding to go with it. Why do you think this happens? These are not like, this is not grandma. This is a Unilever or some very, very sophisticated advertiser that's out there. I don't know. I don't have a lot of insight to that question. One of the things that I observe is that I would guess that in large part, it is an inertia problem. When you're at a large company, it's very difficult to move things and you have ad teams that are built in. You have built-in budgets that get approved year over year. And structurally, people are very used to outsourcing and working with agencies and things get very complex, very fast. And that I think the best story to turn to there is the Uber agency litigation around tons and tons of money that were spent on fraudulent ads or ads that the client had not approved. And you read those lawsuits and it's just mind-boggling how complex it is. And I think that says a lot. The agencies are also the first groups that complain about Google and Google's power as well. So it doesn't seem to necessarily like in cahoots with Google, they complain and they feel Google is encroaching on their power, et cetera. How do you see that tension working out over time? Yeah, I think that's a very fraught relationship. So we can imagine that Google wants to disintermediate the agencies and the agencies need Google because they flow most of their spend through Google. So I'm not long on the agency model. I have not been long on the agency model for a long time. A lot of the companies are other players in the ad tech ecosystem that get pushed around by you know some of these big giants like Google. And even Facebook gets pushed around by Apple, for instance. And so even a very, very mighty company like Facebook doesn't have the same power as maybe a Google or an Apple has because they control the platforms. But maybe it always seems like these big companies in every industry take advantage of the little guy. Like, How do you imagine a world where the innovative startup will have a bit more power? Innovative startup will have a bit more power. What, what kind of startup? Well, let's say an innovative ad tech startup doing something pretty cool or something like that. Maybe some of the people that were in your research that got pushed around quite a bit by Google, or in many other cases, their companies get pushed around by Amazon, companies get pushed around by Apple. Even some of these huge companies like Epic can get pushed around by some of the bigger giants. How do you see that equilibrium changing over time? Or do you think, certainly it seems like, let's say over the last 10 years, the power has shifted more and more to a very small number of very, very, very big players? Yeah. I guess I would say that I definitely would not want to enter the ad tech markets. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody came to me, sometimes people do come to me with new idea pitches, and I'm just like, no. There's just a lot of structural barriers to succeeding, at least in terms of entering the market to represent publishers and act as an ad server or enter the market at the exchange level or enter the market on the buy side. Like I think it's extremely rational for VCs to not pump money into that market right now. And what would we have to see to change that dynamic? I think we would have to see Google being broken up in terms of divesting its interests on the sell side, at the exchange level, and on the buy side. Alternatively, I think we would need to see strong regulation that manage those conflicts of interest such that a company could really enter in any one of those three levels of that transaction. So for example... Advertising markets, Google has almost absolute and total bottleneck power on the sell side representing publishers. And so if you have a really great exchange idea and you're like, I'm going to 
create this great exchange and we're going to do great and everybody's going to want to use our exchange because we're going to be less expensive and we're going to provide a better product and have better match quality. I'd be like, irrelevant. You depend on the ad server on the left-hand side of the equation for liquidity. That is completely in Google's domain. They have conflicts of interest because they operate their own exchange. Like, no, do not sink money into a business that is completely dependent on the whims of this singular company providing you with liquidity. So now if you're looking at just a marketplace in general, let's say just a random marketplace out there, what are the things that you think one could look at to see, is it the take rate that we look at to see if the marketplace is unfair? Bill Gurley has a saying, there's a rake too far. Is that what we look at? Or how do we know whether the marketplace is operating What are some heuristics to know whether the marketplace is operating relatively efficiently and fairly? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that whenever I've sort of discussed these markets generally with smart economists, they're always astounded by the take rates in the ad industry. So I can't tell you where I think that would end up in a competitive market, but I'm very comfortable saying 30 to 50% as a take rate is wildly insane. And how do you think of it like with the App Store, both the Google App Store and the Apple App Store, they've also faced a lot of legal action recently, mostly because they up with their very, very high take rates and also take rates not only for buying on the app, but for in-app purchases. Do you have a sense that certainly there's a very easy argument to say this is hurting consumers because it probably results either in higher prices or at least in a bad UI where I can't sign up for Netflix on my iPhone. I have to go to my PC to sign up first and then go back to the iPhone to go do it. Are those some of the arguments that if you were thinking about that, that you would use? Or how do you think about that more like nuanced problem? From an antitrust perspective? Whether it's an antitrust perspective or just generally like this is bad for consumer perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think the bad for consumer perspective, at least for me, is a pretty clear cut I don't really buy the privacy arguments there. I mean, we made similar arguments with browsers in the early days of the browser market. Browsers were considering sort of building in payment solutions to the browser itself. Would we today be having a conversation? Like if one of the browsers was like, sorry, you can't use any other payment solution. You have to use ours and we're going to take a 30% cut. And don't worry, we have lots of good privacy reasons and we want to protect you and we're going to protect the consumers. We'll make sure the shipping gets to you, we'll ensure it all and everything. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I just feel like it doesn't pass a smell test. You know what I mean? Like, would we be entertaining that argument? No, people would think it's crazy. And yet similar arguments are being used for the app store context. And so I just think it's like odd. Certainly there's a lot of people who are upset about it, et cetera, but it doesn't seem like some of those things have risen to the level where you would expect it, where I mean, people live their life in these apps and there is a lot of consumer harm that's happening. And it's not like these companies are not profitable or something that are taking the, they have the ability to lower the price. And so why is there not more outcry, you think? So when you say companies lower the price, are you referring to the apps? I'm talking about like the iOS and Android marketplace. They could say tomorrow it's 15% instead of 30 and they'll still be widely profitable companies. It's not like they're going to be unprofitable all of a sudden. I don't think it's an issue of being profitable or not being profitable, right? You have to answer to shareholders and everybody's in it to make more money tomorrow. And that's the architecture of the game. So 
I think that from a consumer perspective, we don't hear a lot because for you or I, it's like not a big deal. Like we don't buy that many apps on a monthly basis. And so how much money are we really talking about from our pocketbook? So we hear the voices emerge from the companies that are feeling it more because they're like feeling it 30% across all of their customer base. And so those are the voices that we've been hearing, like the Epic voice. So maybe taking a slightly tax. So I love Costco. I'm a huge Costco fan. I love Costco. I love the Kirkland brand. But they've been raising prices and decreasing sizing of packages, Oren. I'm very interested. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, see, I'm not a smart enough consumer. I certainly didn't know that. But I love the Kirkland products. I just think they're great. People make fun of me, but I just love the Kirkland products. And really what they're doing, these Kirkland products is they're rebranding another product and they're essentially private labeling some product that they know that's selling. And then of course, companies like Amazon have come into a lot of scrutiny recently for doing maybe a similar practice with way more SKUs than a Costco. Why is what Amazon is doing different than something like a Costco has been doing for years? I've thought a lot about this question, trying to make sense of that. Because even if you ask me, like you go to your grocery store and the guy that's selling garbage pails and can't the grocery store use the sales data to launch their own garbage pail? And I'm like, yeah, that seems fine. That passes the smell test for me. But then you ask me, oh, but should Google be able to use customers' data to inform its own trading decisions? I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. So like, where is the dividing line? So this is kind of a mushy answer, but this is where I come out on this. I think that with the garbage pail example, it's like if I'm the manufacturer of garbage pails and I'm selling it at CVS and CVS is going to use my data to compete with me, am I going to be out of business? No. Because they're a small percentage of your sales type of thing? You're a small percentage. You're not going to kill me. You know what I mean? Maybe you'll win. Maybe you won't win. I don't know. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I don't win. I think where the dividing line is, is when you know that you're going to die and the other party is always going to win. And I think that's why you have rules against, for example, the house playing in gambling environment, because you know, in that situation, you are always going to lose and the other party is always going to win. And so the dividing line, that explains why we can have similar situations, whether it's Costco, Kirkland brand using sales data, or like the garbage pail manufacturer at your local CBS. And you can be like, I'm okay with that. But the Amazon situation, you're like, no, that doesn't make sense. Because if you're the amount of e-commerce that they control is so great. And if you're a small brand or a manufacturer and you start selling on Amazon, if Amazon uses your data to basically be like, oh, that's a great toy invention. I'm going to take that idea, copy it and launch it in two weeks. Like it's going to kill, it can, it can basically kill you and allow Amazon to win. And I think that's why we can have similar situations, but feel very differently about them. Okay. One thing has been very interesting is seeing how different countries are tackling some of these problems and We've seen China take very, very aggressive action against their large tech companies in recent months. How do you think about what they're doing or maybe how other jurisdictions are looking at this problem and relaying it back to the United States? I think it puts the US in a very tough spot. I think we have to look at the speed with which China is acting against some of its big tech interests and sort of look at the sort of inefficient process in the U.S. and really scratch our heads about how we're going to compete from a public policy perspective 
with some of these issues that are plaguing our society if we can't act faster. Okay, cool. A couple of personal questions. So one is, I know you're also an artist. I've seen your charcoal paintings on Twitter, which are super cool, super awesome. How did that happen? Have you like sold paintings? Like, can we get like a world of gas charcoal painting? Like, how does that work? That's very flattering. I don't consider myself an artist. They look really good. Thank you. Thank you. So it started sort of one day we were bored. I think we lost electricity in Connecticut Okay. in one of the storms and the kids were like, oh, what do we do? And I'm like, I don't know. How about we draw? Let's just draw. And so we were drawing each other and I drew and people were like, wait, why can you draw? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I thought the task was to draw the other person. And they're like, yeah, but most people can't just like draw. <laughs> <laughs> So I have no art training. Oh, you don't have no training at all? I've seen this thing like, I thought you at least went to night art school or something or anything. No, I have no art training. And I didn't even know that I could draw. And I thought that was just like normal, but your eye is seeing it. So you're just replicating like what your eye is seeing. (laughs) Because I mean, you have a very sophisticated shading. And I mean, I'm 100% confident that give me like a thousand hours of training. I could not do anything similar to that. So- After that point, I actually, when I stopped working in the ad industry, I was considering I either wanted to write on economic topics, or I thought I would comment on social issues through painting. (laughs) And so (laughs) I had contemplating either studying art or pivoting to writing about antitrust and economic topics. I mean, it was just a flirtation with the idea, but I am fascinated by art as a speech tool. Do you think you can marry the two somehow? We can marry the economics writing and the antitrust with art? I'm not sure. Right now I'm quite busy, so it'd be quite difficult, but maybe someday. Okay. Awesome. Recently, you tweeted that JDS Uniphase fell 99.9 or so percent after the dot-com crash. What was that tweet about? Like, Why did you tweet about that? I think that now we're sort of waiting to see what Fed policy is going to do with respect to interest rates. And my husband and I talk a lot about what could happen. Like we live in a state where we think that things can't happen. But if we remember actually what did happen, like during the first dot-com crash, like you had some really crazy things happen, crazy drops that you would never imagine would have happened. And at the time, I think I was... 19 years old, and I had purchased JDS Uniphase without understanding what the hell it was and what they did. And so, <laughs> this is always a source of like comedy or whatnot in our household. The fact that I own JDS Uniphase is that like my mom owning crypto today? <laughs> Someone asked me, How much did they drop? And so I looked it up, and it's like, it's not 99%, it's like 99.8%. <laughs> oh my gosh. Interesting. All right. Well, I follow you on Twitter at Dina Srinivasan on Twitter. Is that the best way for people to engage with you or where else should people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, that's great. All right. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to do that. And thank you very much, Dina, for joining us on World of DAS. Thanks for having me, Orin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.